0: What you want, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, well you might find you get what you need. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern Time in the U.S., but since we're global, you have to figure out what time it is where you are, and you can catch all of our back shows at visionaries.podbean, dot com. And today I want to continue talking about some books I've been reading, and <laughs> given my digressive style Last time I did this, I didn't get to the books, but—and <clears throat> I'll even start with a digression right now. So this morning I get up, and I'm flipping through the newspaper and going through the online stuff that I follow. <clears throat> One of them, if you're into education, is InsideHigherEd.com, and it's news about stuff going on in education. And you get to comment. So I can get in arguments with people, which I love to do. Anybody want to call in and get in an argument? Uh, uh, 888-874-4888 is our phone number. But anyway, um, the I'm, I'm flipping channels on TV. And I figure I'll check out C-SPAN books because sometimes they it's on the weekend, but Sometimes I run into Monday, and sure enough, they're doing I, I'm seeing this guy talking about future fabrication. His name's Gershenfeld, Alan Gershenfeld. Well, I know who Neil Gershenfeld is. Who's this? So I look it up, and it turns out there were three Gershenfelds on the panel promoting a new book, Designing Reality. So I want to recommend that. And it's about um What happens when anybody can make anything, anywhere, anytime? Now, what does that mean? So it's only a tiny bit about 3D printing, but think of 3D printing. So you want something. You want a, I don't know, I'm thinking it's a big controversy. You can 3D print a gun. You still have to buy the bullets, But you can 3D print your own gun. But anyway, um, Neil Gershenfeld is at MIT, and he has something called the Center for Bits and Atoms, and he runs something called the Fab Labs uh, and teaches a course how to make anything. And suppose you're in Africa, you know, picking that as a middle of nowhere, and you want a bicycle, and you're going to have to make it. Well... You know, step one, you got to make a bicycle making factory. So you need a building, you need machines, you need what? Casting, milling, um, bending. Or you could just 3D print a bicycle and skip that whole other part. And what are you going to 3D print it out of? Well, Neil Gershenfeld's Fab Lab. It's not just 3D printing. It's also bending machines and laser cutters and stuff like that. And your raw material might be stuff from the garbage dump. And so... Uh, but his his Fab Lab includes the machines that will enable you to make anything. And... So what does that mean? How, how much of our world is made around the way Gershaw puts it is you go to work you do something you don't want to do 8 hours a day 5 days a week to get money to go to the store to buy something you need what if you just 3D printed the thing you need you could skip the whole rest of it (laughs) so what does that do to jobs work the structure of society, infrastructure. Think of uh, think of Amazon and how much of Amazon is built around delivery. And delivery is so important that they're always struggling. You know, if you're a Amazon Prime member, you pay ninety nine dollars a year, and you get free second day delivery of most stuff you buy. Okay. Uh, And then if you really want it tomorrow, you can pay extra and get it tomorrow. But they're really working hard to deliver it today. And so now you have UPS and FedEx and the post office. And interestingly, they don't tell you, but they all cooperate. (laughs) You know, the post office, the UPS – Leave stuff at the post office. the mailman delivers u p s stuff it's all integrated uh but anyway you uh Amazon is building out its own delivery service, and then of course, what's the sexy part of it? sexy part of it is delivery by uh, self driving vehicles and drones uh <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, next generation of New York apartments has a little platform outside your 25th-story window where the drone from Pizza Hut drops off the pizza. (laughs) And who knows? It's on the way. I used to live in a brownstone. You know, uh, FedEx would come with something. I wasn't home. They scotch tape a sticker to the door, go downtown and pick it up. (laughs) What? So now I'm in an apartment building with a doorman who now three-quarters of the doorman's job is handling deliveries. You know, I come in on a typical day, and the doorman's got piles of boxes in the lobby um, recording it all, and they're now all computerized and then hauling it off to the package room. I said, what is this, Christmas? He says, yeah, it's like this every day. So this is a huge part of the world, and Amazon is launching its own delivery service to compete with uh, UPS and FedEx and the post office. So this delivery is a big deal. But what happens when... uh, And, you know, you can think of all kinds of stuff. There's no way you could 3 How could you pre-3D print a cell phone, right? Uh, But they do. And the the 3D printer has in its feedstock the plastic with which it's going to print, but it also has chips in its feedstock. So, obviously, the 3D printer doesn't make chips, but it could incorporate them. And so what happens with that world? How do, how does everything else change? So the book Designing Reality by three Gershenfelds is about that. And if you're interested in this like and you're like me, like first thing I checked on this book is, is there an audio version? Nope. Oh Jesus. I have to read a book. I can't read a book. Um I can listen to a book. So there's no audio version. So I'll have to put this one off. But when there's no audio version, excuse me while I clear my throat. throat. When there's no audio version, very often you can get the author talking on YouTube, whether it's a lecture in a bookstore promoting the book or at a university, whatever, so after checking for an audio version, the next place I go is YouTube and I said, you know, Neil Gershenfeld now, if you want to know who Neil Gershenfeld is, go to back shows for visionaries. Because we did a show about him and we had some uh video and audio clips. The video clips won't show in the back shows, it showed in the original. You can follow us uh You can hear us on PRN.FM, but you can also hear us on Facebook. Go to the Progressive Radio uh, Network channel, and you can hear this show right now. Sometimes when we're showing video clips, you want to do that, and then you can catch the video clip. Anyway, I go to YouTube, and I've been keeping up with Neil Gershonfeld. So I say, okay, go to Filter on YouTube and say, I just want the last year or even the last month. And then if you've heard stuff in the past, you can skip the repeats and get uh, direct access to the most recent. So he's talking about a revolution in computers, and um, he says – Computer science was a mistake. It's just a part of physics. And so he wants to redo physics to include computation. He wants to redo computer science to make it about physics. And he challenges what we call the von Neumann machine or the von Neumann architecture for computers. And that involves the CPU and the memory and so what what is that? Why doesn't why doesn't the memory do the computing? Why does it have to shuffle stuff back and forth? So he's totally rethinking computing and then in fabrication, okay, so you have a machine and it's controlled by a computer. Let's say it's a milling machine. So you have a big block of something. Uh, Apple mills the aluminum cases for uh computers. So you have a block of aluminum and you have this very high strength steel bit that that goes back and forth and buzzes back and forth and drills out the aluminum until you have the shape you want. Okay. Or you 3D print the shape. So that's subtractive fabrication. Um in additive fabrication, you have the base of the 3D printer which is hopefully, you know, Teflon. And the thing lays down a thin layer in hobby versions of plastic, although automobile manufacturers, very big white BMW, use them to lay down metal. You put down little bead, tiny little beads of metal, and hit them with lasers. And so you build up the part you want. And there's some parts that have shapes you just can't make any other way. Imagine stuff going on. Imagine you wanted to make uh, a rosebud in steel. How do you do that? You could uh, make the outside design of a rosebud, but you want all those layers of petals. Uh, would you make each petal and then weld them in, into place? Would you? You couldn't take a block and drill away, leaving the petals, because you never get in there for the you know around the bends for making it. And there are things like parts of fuel injectors that are uh, atomizing the fuel in the air in certain ways that produces sonic vibrations that atomize <coughs> the fuel ideally. So it has weird shapes going on inside. And 3D printing is the only way to make those. So they can 3D print in metal. But what Neil Gershenfeld is working on is, okay, so you have the, say, block of aluminum and the machine that drills out the excess and leaves the desired piece behind. And then you have the computer that's directing the drill. But what if the information were not in the computer, but were in the metal itself? That's what he's working on. So it's a whole new way to think about computation. Now, what would be an example of that? Uh, Anybody raise your hands? Uh, What's an example where the information on how to make the thing is in the thing. You don't need an outside thing to make the thing. Uh, Hello, us. (laughs) If you want to make an oak tree, you wouldn't have a computer program for the shape of an oak tree controlling a printer that would put together the wood. The oak tree makes itself, the information in the DNA. Uh, on how to make an oak tree is in the acorn and then in the oak tree as it continues to grow. Same thing with us. So we know this is very doable. Gershenfeld likes to say we're made out of 20 parts because there are 20 amino acids that build all of human beings. DNA, uh, which is four letters and two rules— Codes for making things in amino acids, of which there are twenty, that then make all the proteins that make up us. Anyway, that was I got waylaid this morning watching that on C-SPAN, which I highly recommend. But I thought today I'd get back to my list of uh, so I I'm kind of a book person. I don't want to say how much. I'm spending too much on many storage full books. And this is after literally selling thousands of them to um, Strand Bookstore and giving thousands to my university library. But anyway, uh, so I'm still knee-deep in books. But where possible, I... Buy audiobooks and they're on my belt in my cell phone. Used to be in a little iPod, which I still like the iPod because it's so small and convenient, but I've gotten more and more into using my phone. But anyway, so I get these books from Audible. So I went into my Audible account and I printed out uh, uh, a bunch, you know, going back a couple of years what I've been listening to. So one of them I just finished recently, I often listen to several at a time, so it takes a while, is a book called The Third Wave by Steve Case. So who can tell me who Steve Case is? Anybody? Founder of AOL. (laughs) When AOL was the biggest thing there was. AOL was bigger than the internet, literally. And then uh, it faded away. So, there's a book, and I mentioned it earlier in my book reporting here, by Alvin Toffler called The Third Wave. And it's a follow up to Toffler's earlier book, Future Shock. Now, I never read Future Shock. You don't have to, <laughs> it's all in the title. You know, uh, change is coming along too fast for us to be able to handle. That's, you know, the book in a nutshell. So the third wave is about what comes after the Industrial Revolution. And so it's electronics and communication and information and biotech, all that stuff. And the book's outdated. It's from the 70s, but it's actually still readable today. I use books like that in my classes because the students can then be critical of the book because they've lived through, you know, 20 years of what happened since. And so they can say, you know, where did the book get it right and not get it right? But anyway, Steve Case, founder of AOL, used that title as an homage to Toffler's book, The Third Wave, An Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future. And it's a kind of put-together book. There are two parts to the book. There's what he thinks is going to happen in Internet 3.0 how it's going to be different from Internet 2.0 and 1.0. So Internet 1.0, you go there and you look at stuff. It's like a magazine that you can thumb through on the screen. Internet 2.0 you interact with, like Facebook. So what you do changes it for other people to see. And uh, so he is thinking about what's going to come next in this book. But I was really interested in something, and that is a o l had a lot of nifty features. I was sort of working in the biz at the time, and so I tried to be aware of what a o l could do. I was working with an entrepreneur who was building a competitor to a o l so we you know we knew the insides of what was going on here, and a o l was really good at communications. They had three things. Now, eventually, we got email. So, <clears throat> But AOL had email. Now, originally, AOL email could only communicate to other AOL members. And that's why so many people got on AOL, because there was Genie and you know, three or four platforms. And you had to join each one to be able to email people on that one. And... Outside of business, for personal stuff, more people were on AOL. So, you know, most people you knew were on AOL. You could email them. Then email became cross platform. In other words, you could email from AOL to any other platform, it became universal. But you had email. Then you had uh, instant messaging. You could see who was online. So you would make a list of people who were your people you want to be in touch with. And if they were online, there's a little box. And it showed everybody in your list who is currently online. And you could click on them and send them a message. And you could message back and forth, just having a conversation. And then you could do one more thing. You could have a group discussion. You could have... I think it was up to seven people something like that in a group now imagine how useful this would be in business you're having a business meeting in a group everything you post all seven, all six other people can see and then if you want to privately say to somebody you know uh your boss is he kidding uh You can private message to any one of those people as well as message to all of them. So it really has a lot of the organic quality. Today we do all that with video as well, and it's Skype or GoToMeeting or something like that. But AOL had all of it 30 years ago. And then they were just adding video. But AOL was dial-up. It worked with your telephone. And... It was a bitch because, first of all, you needed—if you were on AOL, people couldn't call you. They got a busy signal. Or you needed another phone. Okay, then you call in, and it's busy because, let's say, the line could handle 100 callers. After that, you had to try the Connecticut number. And then you're paying long-distance charges. So AOL merged with uh, Time Warner, and that included Time magazines, Time, Fortune, People, and two humongous problems solved. Number one, or could have been. So number one, uh, Time Warner owned the largest cable system. So that meant AOL could jump over to cable and have a high-speed interconnect, internet connection. They couldn't get it together. The cable section of the new company, AOL Time Warner, wouldn't allow AOL to use their cable network. Then you'd think that they could promote themselves to the uh, Fortune magazine subscribers as a business service. You could have go-to-meeting-like capabilities using AOL. The Fortune people wouldn't talk to AOL. Then you think they could digitize the entire past 100 years or whatever it is of Time Magazine and Life Magazine, and there would be the foundation for Wikipedia. They would have, you know, Decades of in-depth news information, anything you wanted to find out about the news for the past hundred years, you, they, you could start with they would have digitized and indexed all of Time Magazine. Time Magazine wouldn't let AOL do that. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm watching this merger happen. I'm thinking, wow, look at the things they can do. And I didn't do a single one of them. And and then the whole thing collapsed. So, uh, Time Warner eventually spun off AOL. AOL is now owned by one of the phone companies, AT&T and Verizon. I don't know which has which, but one has Yahoo, the other has AOL. And <clears throat> AOL is a you know a tiny shadow of its of its past, but. It could have owned the whole thing. It could have become Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Wikipedia. It could have been the whole thing. And so one of the reasons I want to read this book by Steve Case is what happened? What's the story? So the story was that the merger was kind of rocky. You know, they... um, See what was it? AOL Time Warner bought. No, I'm sorry. Time Warner bought AOL, and they bought it at the peak. Uh, and there was controversy about was AOL, you know, playing with the books <coughs> about how much it was really worth. And Steve Case says they weren't. <laughs> he says even if it's true. Uh, you know, it's like 1% of our valuation, so it was not significant. If In case you're interested, here's what they were accused of. Um, internet advertising became a big thing. At that time, now it's uh, associated with search. So Google sort of owns most Internet advertising. But at the time, it was whoever had eyeballs. So Yahoo and AOL were a big part of Internet advertising. So, you go on AOL and there would be a banner flashing, you know, buy ABC shoes. And if you click now, the thing they liked about that, if you click on it and go to the ABC shoe site, ABC shoe knows you came from AOL. So they know they're getting their money's worth. Or maybe they even pay AOL according to the clicks and not to, um, you know, how much banners go up. But, what some of these companies did, not accusing any specifically, was one of these big companies would go to the other and say, look, you buy $10 million worth of advertising on my platform and I'll buy $10 million of advertising on yours. Um, okay. Now, you just, nobody made any money with that. You know, they just hand a check back and forth. But, Both of them could say, oh, we had $10 million more in revenue. We had a bang-up quarter. Not only that, but but does that affect profit? Because there's still no profit there. But then they did something else. What they did was, okay, Company X uh, took in $10 million from Company Y uh, for banners and they say, oh, we just made $10 million. Fantastic. We'll recognize $10 million this month. And But then they spent $10 million. Aha. But they're going to say, well, that was a capital expenditure. We're going to amortize it over uh, 12 months. So only 8% of it is recognized this month or $700,000. So we made uh profit. Now, they didn't, but they can do bookkeeping that makes it look like they did. And then their stock is valued based on that phony baloney profit. And a lot of these companies during what's called the dot-com boom before it collapsed in 2000, what they were building was not companies, but stock valuations. (laughs) Anyway, There might have been some of that going on. Who knows? But I was really curious what does Steve Case have to say? He's a venture capitalist. He funds a lot of interesting companies. He's particularly... Because, you know, he left a billionaire from uh, when he left the AOL Time Warner thing. Uh, And so what's his take on what's going on today? And what's the story on what happened with this failed merger? And... It, um You know, he doesn't have all the inside, as much inside dirt as one would like to hear. But basically, what it comes down to, as he said, he blamed the uh, Time Warner people. The Time Warner people wouldn't talk to us. They wouldn't do any joint ventures with us. They wouldn't put together their businesses with our business. They were resentful of us. They felt... Time Warner had paid too much for us. They thought we were a flash in the pan and were wouldn't have anything to do with us. And all these things that could have owned the future and other people like Facebook came along and ate their, ate their lunch. And AOL is now just sort of a name that was bought by one of the phone companies. So anyway, that's the third wave. Recommend it particularly if you live through the, um, the 1990s Internet era. And it's always interesting, you know, what happened. What, 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 You know, if you have vague memories of it, you get the inside dope. Okay, next book on my list is The Seventh Sense, Power, Fortune, and Survival in the Age of Networks by Joshua Cooper Ramo. And the first thing I have to say is I don't remember a thing about this book. (laughs) i got to listen to it again. And I'm working on a book right now about networks. So I'm definitely interested in the material. And it may not have uh, struck me as powerfully as it should have. So what can I say? Uh, I'll listen to it again and get back to you. Next one is uh, (laughs) one that... uh, one of the few books I've listened to twice. So it's Jack, Straight from the Gut. And this is getting interesting because this is Jack Welsh, who was regarded as the greatest CEO of all time until the second coming of Steve Jobs. And now, um, you know, it, it, the two share that title, one or the other is the, uh, but they're, they're the top two. And Jack Welch came into a reasonably healthy and successful General Electric, and <clears throat> I'm not remembering when, but he even left uh, twenty years ago. So, and um, he turned it into a mega successful company. And how did he do that? What did he do? And it was mostly by um, brutal honesty. Uh, There were a lot of things that GE was doing that, for example, they made nuclear power plants. And uh, after Three Mile Island, nobody was ordering any new nuclear power plants. And so that was a big division of theirs, a big chunk of the company. What's going to happen? So all the divisions would be making their reports, and they— Nuclear power plant division would say, "Well, uh, you know, we hope to sell maybe one of them in the next five years." And he said, "Baloney! You're not going to sell any. You got to face that. That you would go back, sharpen your pencil, mm-hmm. and figure out how you're going to sell zero nuclear power plants, and you're going to make money. Otherwise, we'll get rid of the division. We're not going to hold on to a division. It's not going to make money. And." Uh, So brutal honesty. You can't say, well, I hope. I remember that uh, I teach at a college since I'm going to do a little inside here. I'm not going to name it. I've named it many other times. But there was a time when enrollment was not in good shape. A budget was terrible. And what they would do was, you know, each uh, fall, the central administration, which at the time was incompetent in the past 25 years they got their act together, but they were incompetent a while back. And they would go to all the department chairs and say, what's your uh, enrollment going to be for this year and what are your budget needs? And, you know, they ought to be balanced with what your budget needs should reflect the income you're going to get from your enrollment. So all the chairs would inflate the enrollment. Come October, They'd say, oh, gee, we didn't make our enrollment, but we can't fire half our faculty. We're already in the fourth week of classes. Um, Where's that at? You know, they were the administration let these chairs get away with not being on. They knew they weren't going to get that enrollment, but that was the game you played to protect your budget. Well, everybody does that. And Jack Walsh put a stop to it at G, said, you got to be honest. Well, when he forced them to, and this is just one of 100 examples in the book, the Nuclear Power Division became incredibly profitable because they focused on servicing existing nuclear power plants. There's a lot of them out there, and they need service. They need upgrade. They need parts. They need rebuilds. They need whatever— and there's a huge business there uh there's just no business in building new ones at the moment i think there might be one in planning right now but <laughs> that's one in 30 years so uh so number one was brutal honesty and number two was a respect for his business g e had a finance division and it started as okay uh, somebody's, you know, say Boeing is buying uh, a th- uh, hundred jet engines. Well, that's a lot of money. I don't know, what are they, $20 million each? So you're talking about a quarter billion dollars. Uh, well, so Boeing uh, or an electric company is buying a generator. And eh, maybe it's a $50 million generator, $100 million generator. They would have to go to the bank to borrow the money to buy the generator or the jet engines. GE said, "You know, we've got a um, we've got a AAA rating. Uh, we can sell bonds and collect money, and then lend it to these people at better rates than banks can." And part of lending is understanding the borrower. Are they going to be able to pay this back? Well, who knows GE's customers better than GE? So they started this division, GE Finance, and eventually it became huge and it really became the the largest source of profits for GE. So Jack Walsh built that up and just when he left that was getting iffy. You know, it's really dangerous stuff because you're you know, well, you know, you're you're lending money and you're saying three percent of the people I'm lending to are gonna default. And if it turns out it's 4%, you suddenly you're losing money. Uh, so it's really tricky stuff. So GE has now gotten totally out of uh, GE finance as much as they can. They actually just recently stuck with a uh, very bad bet in long-term health insurance. But I've been following what GE's been up to. They just fired Jeff Immelt, who was Jack Walsh's replacement, and, you know, GE is sort of very indicative of what the country's about. What do we make? How do we make it? Uh, jet engines, washing machines, plastics. Uh, how do you—what's this about? And if you follow GE, you're following what this stuff is all about. So anyway, Jack Walsh's is a great book. I just reread it because I wanted to get a, a better grip brick grip. On what uh, happened to Jeff Alt. so I definitely recommend it. When I first listened to it, it was on cassette tapes. I used to walk around with a fanny pack that had a Walkman and about six tapes in it, and I kept you know swapping out the tapes as I. And sometimes it's too boring to listen to one book continually, so I you know have tapes for a couple of different books, and I have to keep track of them, and I need them all on me. Um, But I had to buy it again on uh, Audible Books. Next one I have here is not what I thought it was going to be. It's On Writing Well Collection. Well, I don't see On Writing Well on Audible, but I recommend it. There's a book called Elements of Style by Strunk and White. So Strunk was a great, famous <clears throat> English usage or English writing teacher, I think at Cornell. And one of his students was E.B. White and uh, Charlotte's Web. And Strunk wrote a little book on usage, on grammar, and you know where you put commas and semicolons and the difference between, uh, you know, um, Oh, I don't know, pronouns and all the parts of speech and what they are, grammar, rules of grammar, and usage, how to write clearly. Don't use the passive tense. You know, the dog was hit. No, the man hit the dog. Because if you say the dog was hit, you're hiding who hit the dog. Well, very famous book recommended by my colleagues at school. I'm not that happy with it. In terms of... A guide for writing. I think you'd do better with William Zinser, Z-I-N-S-S-E-R, on Writing Well. He taught for many years and he's retired. I'm not sure he's still alive. I should look it up. But he's retired from Yale. And this book has gone through quite a number of uh editions. One of the editions had as an example of excellent writing, um, what's his name? Gunzo Journalist, um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and the opening scene of that where they're <laughs> loading up the rented Cadillac convertible with drugs <laughs> for their drug craze trip to Las Vegas, um. What's his name? I'm not thinking of the writer's name, but he has a uh, Zinzer has a a long quote from that. I don't think it's in the current edition, but a great book on writing, and something he has an exercise in there which I haven't done, but I sort of refer my students to it, and that is, uh, have them students write an essay. Great, say it's six pages. Uh, okay, for next week, cut it in half to three pages without losing anything. Because half of what you wrote is probably fluff. Well, that's doable, and they all do it. And he says, Now the hard part cut it in half again. Now you get to really good writing. Well, those kinds of exercises. He has examples of it. And I'm kind of into writing, and he'll, have, uh, he'll say, Here is the typewriter draft of, on the left side, on the left page, of what you're seeing on the right page. This is a a book you want to have uh, in your hand and not audible. And then he says, look how I've marked it up. Look you know, this is how I've cut the fluff out, tightened it up, improved the writing, uh, improved clarity. And what I like to do for my students is I'll take one of their essays, remove the student's name, and project it in the Word document onto the screen in the classroom and then start fixing it. Say, what does this first sentence say? You know what? It doesn't say anything, erase. <laughs> you know, and they see the little darlings disappear from their, you know, what they thought was clever writing. But um it's a really good lesson. I um had done quite quite a bit of writing for some uh, major kind of obtuse magazines, art form and stuff like that. And I wrote a piece for a very uh, prominent, popular magazine. And I spent two hours on the phone with an editor, with him working on my piece. And, you know, don't use I-N-G words. And... uh I really learned more from that experience than, you know, all my English classes, all the other writing I had done, Mm. when I knew I was going to be doing writing commercially. I even took a course on writing at the new school, sort of the adult ed of uh, New York. They're also a university, but they have a very famous adult ed uh, program. Anyway, this is uh, some writing about this. The audio I have here on Writing Well Audio Collection is bits about writing, but it's not the book. I also recommend the book. And we're running out of time. This is John Lobel. This is Visionaries. We're on PRN.FM. And a reminder to everybody, download our app. So... Go to the um, Apple App Store, the iPhone App Store, or go to the App Store for your Android device and download the PRN app. It'll let you listen to whatever's currently online live, and also more and more of the back shows are being added there. Anyway, we have a few more minutes, so uh, one more book here, and... Fantastic book, How the Hippies Saved Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival. So, long story here, and it's another thing I sort of lived through. I actually knew some of the people in the book. And um, so we have classical physics. We have Newtonian physics. And then we get, 1905, 1915, Einstein's special and general relativity, and that really rocked the boat quite a bit, but it was still—relativity is still called classical. In that, causality works. So, it still maintains causality. Okay. Things are de- And things are deterministic. If one billiard ball hits the next billiard ball, what it does is predetermined by the hit and predictable and was caused. With quantum theory, things get weird. Uh, particle being can be in two places at the same time. Uh, we don't like to pick on cats, but Schrodinger's cat... Uh, Did the particle get emitted by the radioactive material or not and hit the poison bottle? Is the cat dead or alive? And the answer is it's neither dead nor alive or it's both dead and alive until you open the box and look at it. Oh, yeah, but now it was really one or the other. We just didn't know. No, it was neither one or the other. And you can show that quite clearly. Well, the implications of quantum theory were weird, but the math of quantum theory, uh, and you get the heroes of uh, quantum development. Max Planck, who launches the thing. Einstein never likes quantum theory, but he makes major contributions. And Werner Heisenberg uh, is the the great defender. <laughs> Heisenberg saying, there, he won't say whether there is or isn't, But he says, it's meaningless to talk about reality. All we ever know is our experience of reality. And he almost says, there is no reality. There's only experience. Well, what is the cat? That's meaningless. It isn't. It is only our experience of it. Well, by the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, that aspect of quantum theory, which is Philosophical, what is ultimate reality? Uh, physicists had said, well, we don't talk about that. bunch of fuzzy philosophers want to get knee-deep in that. That's their business. But And the famous phrase was, shut up and calculate. So if a student in a quantum theory course in the 1950s raises their hand and says, well, what's actually going on? The instructor says, shut up and calculate. Uh, We don't talk about that. You don't ask that question. Uh, (laughs) You ask that question, you're not going to get your PhD. It was banned. And that's around the time that um, the the multiple worlds theory was proposed. I'm forgetting the guy who proposed it. But he got pushed out of physics. And so starting in the um, yeah, mid '60s, a group of kind of dropout physicists who didn't get you know permanent full-time jobs started meeting at Esalen Institute. Esalen Institute is this unbelievably beautiful place on the cliffs over the Pacific Ocean in Big Sur, California, and they do New Age workshops. So these physicists started meeting there and they started talking about the philosophical implications of quantum theory, particularly its implications for consciousness. If the particle doesn't exist unless or until we look at it, until we are conscious of it, that means, well, does that mean that our consciousness is generative of the world? Does our consciousness play a role in making the world? Why don't we talk about that in future shows? But uh, point is, you weren't allowed to talk about that. Now, the leaders did, you know, John Wheeler talks about that. Uh, Feynman did a little bit. Uh, Niels Bohr did. Heisenberg did. But academic quantum theory all that. So these guys start talking about that. And one of the things they're interested in is, is there an implication here for ESP uh, for these things, you know, these these quantum awareness breakdown time. Does that mean we can know the future? And key thing is can we communicate faster than the speed of light? Can we send a message instantly from New York to California? Uh, it takes a fraction of a second at the speed of light, takes a couple seconds to the moon uh, and back. So when we're talking to people who've landed on the moon, there's a pause, you know. Uh, the message has to get there at the speed of light, and then they hear it and they respond. Has to, answer has to get back at the speed of light. <laughs> so uh, super liminal, super liminal Communication. Communication faster than the speed of light. Now, Einstein's relativity says, no, it's absolutely impossible. If so, it would screw up causality. Well, quantum theory is not so bothered by screwed up causality. So these guys were trying to work on that because there is something that happens called entanglement. So two particles become entangled. You measure one. You have just determined the other one, even though it's now... Uh, in Los Angeles or on the moon or on the other side of the universe. And there are experiments you can do. They've Well, they've done it. It actually is true. Now, trick is, it looks like, informa- yes, your measurement of one changes the other. However, it's not possible for a person on the other end to understand what has happened. So no information is communicated even though this happens. Now, one of the ways this is described is, well, uh, is space an illusion? Are the are the particles all in one spot? It just looks like they're separated by uh, halfway across the universe. So, um, very interesting. And... Uh, these people, these physicists, started to think about this, started to talk about it, started to write about it. And they they started writing books. uh, What is it? Space, time, and reality, something like that. And coming out of this were such really influential books like Friedhoff-Copra's The Tao of Physics comes out of this thinking. I'm not sure exactly his relationship to the group and then there's a book, The Dancing Wooly Masters, comes out of this. So, you know, is there a relationship between quantum weirdness and Eastern thought? Well, they both look at consciousness. So this book, um, How the Hippies Saved Physics. Oh, they also took LSD. <laughs> so all these physicists would go to Esalen Institute, take LSD and then talk and think about quantum physics. And so this book documents what they did. I'm trying to get the uh, the writer on the show, so I keep emailing him. David Kaiser, K-A-I-S-E-R, How the Hippies Saved Physics. Definitely recommend it. Well, let's mention one more before we wrap up. Uh, Farid Zakira, who is... Uh, a middle of Middle Eastern origin and a news commentator who is everywhere. He has columns. He writes for magazines. He's on networks on the you know, news commentator. I'm not going to say which, which news channel because I'm not sure. I think he's got a show, um, regular show on the weekend. So he's a Commentator, newscaster. He wrote a book in Defense of a Liberal Education. Well, I agree with everything he says in the book. It's worthwhile reading. He's uh uh quite interesting to listen to. I don't always agree with his politics, but uh recommend the book. But oh and so liberal education's been under attack. You know, a bunch of uh Conservative state legislatures want the to, legislature to only pay for public universities if they're doing vocational education. You know, <clears throat> you go to university, you study English Lit or Women's Studies or Obama picked on History of Art, and lo and behold, you can't get a job. Well, um Let's pick up on that uh, next time and wrap up. You have been listening to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. We're here on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time. you got to figure out what time it is in your part of the world. Listen on your smartphone. Plug it into or Bluetooth it to your car radio. Listen with the headphones while you're walking around. You can get the prn.fm on your smartphone's uh, browser or download our app, PRN, and see you next week.